You're listening to a North Valley Church podcast. Thanks so much for joining. For more information and resources, you can visit us online at northvalley.org. All right. Well, good morning. Good to be with you. Those of you that are new, my name's Ryan. Great to have you a part of our church. Uh, Man, it's been an exciting time for those of you uh, that say I'm a conservative Christian. Friday marked an important day. So let's celebrate that. All right. So, um, and I understand, I've got a lot of friends which I I would put in the category, and they would too, it's called progressive Christianity. And what that means is, is basically they're adhering to the idea that Jesus Christ is the Lord. The Bible does have some authority in their life, but however, it's a lot of neglect perhaps on some just biblical texts regarding lifestyle, uh, the the pro-life choice, and uh, all that stuff. So, The U.S. Supreme Court made the decision on Friday to overturn the landmark abortion decision, Roe v. Wade. It's expected to restrict the procedure uh, to some uh, 26 states in the United States of America. Um, What does that mean for us as a church? Well, number one, it does mean, thank God, we as believers need to understand that um, God says in Genesis, very beginning of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, He says that He created man male and female, uh, in his image. That means, listen to me, that means to you and me, biblically, theologically, that every single person on the planet, regardless of their lifestyle, regardless of their religion, regardless of their economics, regardless of their behavior, any situation, regardless of any deformity, whatever, that, regardless if that, that person is in the womb, that person is a person created by God to reflect his image. So biblically, theologically, um, Friday's a great affirmation that God's people, uh, the church, and for the good of all people, regardless if they're Christians or not, should say, thank you, Lord. Every person born on the planet is created by you. You're the one. And we value life. Amen? Amen. Amen. So here's what this means as well. And I want to affirm this idea biblically for just a moment. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5, the Lord speaks and says, Behold, I saw you in your mother's womb. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, there's the idea of foundational. um, and, And there in the forefront, that all of life, even in the womb, that child, that that. Uh, is a baby, it is a human being, and we're to value that. God says, I I saw you in your womb. You need to know that every child in the planet in the womb is a child created in the image of God and deserves dignity, value, worth, and respect. That baby has a choice, needs a choice to be able to live. And so the Bible affirms that in the Old Testament. The New Testament, you see very clear indication when Mary is pregnant with Jesus. Jesus is in her womb. She visits Elizabeth. Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. Mary shows up. God in his cool makings, uh, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist, gets excited and is like, Jesus is here. I can feel it in the room. And then Elizabeth says, The baby's jumping for joy in my belly because Jesus is here. Here's my point. All my point in saying is that, man, we should celebrate as a Christian 
in the United States of America that we're preserving and protecting life. This is really good. Amen. One more time celebration. Um, secondly, it should be a radical uh, wake-up call for the church in the United States of America. Um, this means that perhaps tens of millions of children will flood into the foster care system or, uh, and be eligible for adoption. Uh, one of my friends I posted on Facebook, he's a Christian, and I'll call him a Christian progressive. He says, Ryan, I know you have a good heart. You know, and get ready the next word, but. Anytime anybody tells you that, they're about to say, hey, that's fine. Everybody can disagree. That's fine. I understand. But this is the, perhaps the greatest health crisis America has ever faced. Fair enough. So here's what we need to do. The church has to foster and adopt. If the church responds, don't we just go bigot and protest all these uh, folks that are, uh, you know, aborting their children? Um, we have to now go, we've got to help. All throughout redemptive history, the church, God's people, step into the crisis and bring the calm. Um, we adopted our child, Maya. It's been one of the greatest, most powerful experiences in our life. So I want to challenge you to do that. I have advocated for fostering and adoption for years and years, and the church, you all, North Valley, have responded with what I would say is with a very mild to little to no response. I'm sorry. We haven't done a great job fostering and adopting in this church. There are families that do, and thank you for doing that. What we have done good and I'm very proud of is that we said orphans are an issue in our culture. Not everybody's willing to foster and adopt, but many, many people say, I want to help out. And we have many fatherless boys in our community and godly men in our church have stepped up and said, I will be a father mentor for this kid. I do care about the orphan crisis. I do want to help build the family correctly and model, right, for a fatherless boy in our city, a fatherless boy in our church. I want to model biblical masculinity. I want to model what it looks like to be a father, and many, many of you have stepped up. So those of you that are a part of Fathers in the Field at any level, organizationally, father mentoring, supporting, praying, would you stand up just for a moment? Stand up, please, please, over here, over here. Over here, thank you. Okay, so we're doing something, but we've got to do far more, amen? Okay, I'll hold you to that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We do thank you. There's going to be a lot of babies in our world, and every child is yours. You made them. And we're thankful, Lord, for celebrating life and protecting life and Lord, it's going to create some challenges for the church, and I do pray just for the churches uh, throughout our country that would respond and seek to share and show the love of Christ through fostering, adopting, or mentoring, giving financially, doing something to help protect those who need protection. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Okay, we're jumping into the Gospel of John, again, we've been in it for 30-something weeks. We're in chapter 7. We're moving at record lightning speed, you can tell. And um, that was sarcastic, and you guys don't know me uh, well enough. But um, anyway, that's okay. John chapter 7, verses 14 through 24. 
uh, Jesus is uh, attending a festival. Um, it's a festival that's really for the Jewish people. Um, and the, the festival was honoring and recognizing God's providence and provision over their life for the nation of Israel. When, remember when perhaps those of you who know your Bible stories pretty well, when Moses leads the people, he says, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people what? Go. And then he leads them out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery. And then God provides for them miraculously. He gives them every day. He gives them what? Ma manna. Everybody say manna. He gives them manna. It's like food falling down from heaven. And so every day they're like, man, this is good. And after a while they're like, this is gross. I want something else to eat. But they still were being provided for. And God uh, worked in a powerful way, opening up the sea. The Israelites move across on dry land. When the Egyptians come after them, the waves come crashing down. And so they never forgot what God had done. They had been acknowledging, and this festival was perhaps the greatest and the biggest of all festivals if you were a Jew back in the first century. It was a really cool festival. How many of you guys have ever been camping before and had a bunch of friends go camping with you? Raise your hand. Okay. Or, so this is a major camp out. Those of you who don't like camping, you probably wouldn't have liked this festival. But their families are all together. They're eating together. They're worshiping the Lord. They're giving thanks to God for his provisions over their life. They are celebrating God's provision, God's protection. They're at this festival. Jesus didn't want to show up at the, the way his brothers, his brothers, if you were a Jewish male, you had to go. And so uh, Jesus' brothers are like, you got to come with us to this festival. It's the biggest. It's the best. And Jesus says, I'm not going. And then his brothers say, Why, if you would go and show everybody that you're God, and maybe, maybe people would really accept you, Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm not going to follow your plan, brothers. Thank you very much. Uh, and then he says, I'm going to go on my time. So he shows up middle of the festival. It's, a, it's an all week long festival. He shows up in middle of the festival and now he's at work. He shows up privately. Uh, he took his own route. He didn't travel with his brothers, his friends, and his family. He went by himself, goes to the festival. He's there and he's going to start teaching. Verse 14, about the middle of the, the feast Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching. Jesus was a teacher. He was constantly teaching. You perhaps re recall in John chapter 6 when he, when he fed the multitudes. Uh, there's no food. There's huge crowds following Jesus. And they're like, he, the people are hungry. If you, if you could do something, do something. So Jesus does a miracle, feeds everybody. And as they're finishing up their food, Jesus turns around and says, hey, I'm the bread of life. And he taught how he was the bread of life after he just performed a miracle and gave them bread. Jesus is constantly teaching, middle of the festival, here he is, verse 15, it says, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it this man has learning when he has never studied? How did Jesus have so much knowledge? And for my unbelieving or unchristian friends, they would say Jesus was just a great rabbi. He was a great, uh, perhaps, prophet. Um, but the 
challenge with that is, is Jesus never went into some formal educational program. Why is that? Because he's God. He doesn't need an educational institution to help him out. He didn't need to study. He is studied. He did review the scriptures, looked at the scriptures, meditated on the scriptures. But his counsel comes from the Trinity, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is all-knowing. Jesus is God. The folks are recognizing this guy's different. He's never studied. Verse 16, Jesus answered them saying, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. He's pointing back and saying, what I'm operating by is I'm operating by a different deal. It's not just my teaching. It's from the one who sent me. Well, who sent Jesus to earth? Let's quote John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son or sent his one and only son. There, there you go. God the Father sent the son. Jesus is in subordination with the Father's will. He's saying it's not just my teaching, but his who sent me, verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Jesus is in essence saying, and I'll come back to this verse, he's in essence saying like, hey, uh, the people who really are seeking God and have a heart for God, they're going to know. They're not going to call me a, a demon. They're not going to call me some crazy teacher, a liar, or a lunatic. They're going to call me the Lord. They will know. There were people perhaps in the crowd that were sitting there hearing Jesus teach and going, that's the Messiah. That's God. Others in the crowd going, he's a liar. He's a lunatic. He's, he's, he's demonic. He's evil. The crowd is all uh, fractured highly uh, volatile crowd. And Jesus says, basically, if anybody wants to do God's will, they're, they're the ones that are going to believe in, in me. Verse 18, Jesus continues. He says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. What's, what's Jesus saying here? What he's saying is that he was sent by the Father, that his goal is to bring glory to his heavenly Father. Um, he's, not glorying, he's not trying to seek glory for his own. Many people in that day and time, if they were good Jewish professors or teachers, uh, they kind of had their own following, had their own glory, had their own story. And Jesus is like, that's not me. Um, he is operating with no selfishness, no sinfulness. He's completely... Uh, perfect because he is God. He's sinless. There's no falsehood in him. Verse 19, Jesus says, has not Moses given you the law? He's speaking to a crowd of deeply religious people right now um, who have rejected Jesus Christ. He says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Um, Jesus is in a, deeply confronting them, exposing them like they're a bunch of sinners and there's people in the crowd at this wonderful festival that actually want to orchestrate a murder, an assassination on Jesus' life. Jesus is all-knowing, so he knows what's going on. You want to kill me? You want to kill me? You actually think I'm the Messiah. You think I'm crazy. You think I'm demonic. He knows what's going on. So he exposes it just for a moment, and then he says, and all of you are lawbreakers, 
of the law. Moses gave the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, by the way, moms and dads, it should be a foundation for you to, for Christian ethics and a vision for your life to see the truthfulness of God in those Ten Commands. By the way, every civilization in the world that is productive and healthy adheres to those Ten Commandments at some level or another. Why is that? Because truth just works. Amen? When you live by truth, your life just works better. So he's referring to the Mosaic Law. He's saying all of you are lawbreakers. You've all uh, committed sin. People are now getting very angry. So the crowd answers verse 20. Listen to that, maybe in unison. You have a demon. I mean, they're, they're just saying he's evil. You have a demon. And then they ask, and they already know, they're just playing dumb. Who's seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered, verse 21, he said, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Um, what's, what's the one work that he was talking about? Um, Jesus is doing a history lesson with them because earlier, if you look back in chapter 5, the last time he was in Jerusalem, he performed a miracle on the Sabbath. He healed the guy who'd been lame for a very long time at this place called the Pool of Bethesda. He heals this guy, but the problem was for the religious people around him is he did it on the Sabbath. And you're not supposed to do any kind of work on the Sabbath, according to the Jews. And Jesus says, I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Like you thought, Some of you thought it was cool. Some of you were astonished. Some of you were shocked. And then he goes on to say, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. In other words, that uh, the idea of circumcision, that didn't start with Moses, by the way. It predated with Abraham. Father Abraham, remember him? And so Abraham was commanded uh, to circumcise. And Jewish culture was that on the eighth day of the birth of a male Jewish boy, they were to be circumcised. Some of you perhaps uh, are unfamiliar with circumcision. Don't worry, I have slides right here to show you. Just joking. Good, you're awake. That's good. Um, so, so the Jews were just did circumcision um, for uh, the, the baby, uh, male babies, on the eighth day. And they would do it even if it fell on the Sabbath. So they're violating a law, in a sense, because they're doing it on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath, you're supposed to rest from everything. But then they want to grill. They want to blast Jesus who's doing something really good for a man who's been lame his whole life, he heals his whole body. And he does it on the Sabbath. But they're mad and want to kill Jesus, so they're hypocritical. This is why Jesus says in verse 23, look at it. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, which that was happening, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. In other words, your thinking is off. You, you su superficially have an understanding of Scripture, but you are so far off. So here's what I want to do today for your journey with God. Your journey with Christianity. Your journey with Jesus Christ. Is I want to make sure that we're clear as those of us who said, 
I want to follow Jesus Christ all the days of my life. I want to live for him. Or you're saying, I, I want to explore the claims of Jesus Christ. Here are four things that Jesus says based on the text that we just covered that I would say you need to know. You need to know what Jesus says about himself. This is not what Ryan says about Jesus. This is not what the Apostle Paul says about Jesus. This is not what church historians say about Jesus. This isn't what Jewish historians say about Jesus. This is what Jesus says. All right, number one, Jesus claims divine authority. That's what he's meant. And those of you who have your Bible, you could flip back there. But in verse 16, he basically says that he's sent by... Um, he says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Jesus was sent here. He was sent to earth to share and show the love of God so that people could experience eternal life. He was sent by the Father, God the Father. Jesus claimed divine authority. Perhaps you remember in John chapter 4, um, if you've got a Bible, you can flip there. But in verse 26, we see that Jesus went to Samaria. He speaks to a woman at the well. And it says in verse uh, 4, backing up, it says he had to pass through there. Jesus has this conversation with a woman at the well and tells her this. Verse 13, let me just read it to you or you can look in your own Bible. Jesus is with this woman, which was a violation of kind of religious uh, protocol. Uh, he was a male Jewish uh, leader teacher and he wasn't supposed to be with her according to their little codes of ethics but he's there and he says to this woman everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again the water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life and the woman says man that's amazing I, I would like to have some water that's like forever good you know, we all do all sorts of kind of mineral waters, and those of us that are into the health kick, I get it. Now we're all worried about, is bubbly good for me or not, or LaCroix good for me or not? And then you go down to Sprouts or Whole Foods, and you're spending like $5 on carbonated water. Dang, I don't like that. But anyway, so this is eternal life kind of water Jesus is talking about. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may never be thirsty again, and I don't have to come here to draw water and then the woman said something like this. Verse uh, 25, if you're looking in your Bible, the woman said to him, I know that there's a Messiah coming and he's called the Christ. And when he comes, he's going to basically tell us all things and explain it all. Jesus says, he's claiming divine authority. Verse 26, he said, I who speak to you, I'm he. I am the Messiah. Jesus up front reveals he's the Messiah He's the one talked about. He's the one prophesied hundreds and thousands of years before. He's God. So Jesus claimed these things continually, consistently. He did that. John 14, 16, also Jesus said this. Later we're going to see. Jesus says, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. That's what Jesus said. Jesus proclaimed things that Buddha never proclaimed, Gandhi never proclaimed, Muhammad never proclaimed. Why is that? Because he's God. 
He proclaimed a divine authority, a divine nature. He is God. Nobody else claimed that. Jesus did. Amen? So, number one, you need to see that Jesus pro proclaims divine authority. Number two, Jesus says that belief comes through desire. Um, when Jesus is uh, speaking to this crowd back in verse 17, um, they're like, we don't know if we buy your teaching or not. Maybe it's demonic. Maybe you're just some crazy person. And then Jesus basically kind of sorts it out. Verse 17, you could look in your own Bible. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he's the one. He will know whether I'm teaching is from God or I'm just speaking on my own authority. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, if, you want, if those of you in the crowd, that you have a heart to do God's will and live by his ways, you're the one, God's already at work in your life, you know I'm true. You know I am who I say I am. Here's my point in saying this, Jesus taught the idea that to have a belief in Christianity, there's going to have to be a desire. If you don't have a desire to know God, it means you're not a Christian and you don't believe in God. God works through desires. Some of you are here today because you have a desire at some level to explore Jesus Christ or to grow in your faith through Je in Jesus Christ. And as you pursue your desires that are good, that are godly, you begin to live out your faith. And your faith, your belief, is strengthened. So how does that happen? Well, you, perhaps you recall in John chapter 3, um, Nicodemus, a Jewish historian who had the, basically the equivalent of uh, two to three PhDs, a Jewish scholar, he's seeking to know Jesus Christ. He comes to him in the middle of the night on a rooftop, and he asks all these questions about Jesus. Is he really the one? And then Jesus says something pretty crazy. He says, listen, unless one is born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. You can't see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is like, wait a second, time out. I was born once. I was born from my mother's womb. But here's what Christianity teaches and Jesus teaches. You have to be born again. How many of you ever remember it back in, in the previous decades, everybody in Christian says, are you a born again Christian? Do you remember that? Yeah. So what do they mean when they say, are you a born again Christian? They mean John chapter 3. What does that mean? That means this that your desires are not for God until you're born again. When you are born again, it's a spiritual birth that God does in your life, changes your desires. I love this phrase, I say it in my life. What happened when I met Jesus, when I gave my life to Jesus, really God just saved me. Here's what happened. All my desires were rewired. My desires got rewired. Some of you uh, know that when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, it's like things that you... Loved, now you ha hate. Things that you hated, you begin to see like Christianity or the church or Christians or Bible. Now you love it. Why is that? You were born again. You have a second birth. And what the truth is, is for Christians, for you, you need to understand that your belief will come through desire and God's at work in your life to draw you to himself. And it happens and it starts all at regeneration. Number three, I challenge you, Jesus declares the sinfulness of man. When he said that in John chapter um, 7, verse 19, he says to the Jewish crowd, the religious folks, he says, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? 
What he's saying is like, you, you don't really love God. You don't even keep the law. You're blasting me. You're hypocritical. You have a superficial faith. And so the truthfulness is, is that we discover about Jesus' life even in Matthew chapter 1, when we celebrate Christmas, we have to understand the mission of Jesus Christ. We discover that Jesus was born. Um, he eternally existed, but he was born in little town of, help me out, Beth. There you go. And so, yes, but what, did Jesus just start there? No, Jesus eternally existed. Jesus took on human flesh. But what was his mission? Well, in Matthew 1.21, it tells us that um, Mary was going to uh, conceive a child. She is a virgin. Uh, she would supernaturally um, have this experience. She would bear a son, and his name shall be called what? Jesus. If I ever ask you a question, just say Jesus, okay? <laughs> so, um, you know, so the angels say that to Mary that you're going to bear a son, and you shall call him what? Jesus. And then the angel says he will save his people from their sins. The whole life of Jesus was to share with people like, hey, you're a sinner. You need a saving. Um, continuing on in, in, in uh, John chapter 4, if you recall, um, back with the woman at the well. Remember, Jesus is ministering to this woman. He's sharing that he is eternal life, that through Jesus himself, that this person can experience life. And the woman's like this, Oh, that's awesome. I'm going to go get my friends, my family, and I'm going to bring them to you in a sense. And Jesus says, yeah, okay. Jesus said to her, why don't you go and call your husband to come here? And she's like, uh, she's probably stuttering. Verse 17, if you're looking in John chapter 4, the woman answered him, I, I have no husband. And Jesus goes, yeah, I, I know. In fact, you're right in saying you have no husband for you've had actually five husbands. And the one guy you're with right now, he's not your husband. You're sleeping with him. You're fornicating. What you've said is true, ma'am. That's right. You have no husband. What did Jesus do? Jesus was revealing her sinfulness. So I believe here's what was going on with that woman. She had a heart that was so hurting. She needed her life to be filled. She wanted her relationship to fill that void. You ever been there before as a single or as an individual, and you're like, I need something to fill this pain in my life. That woman was trying to do it and going through the men. One, two, three, four, five. She's just rifling through men. The one man she needed was Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't afraid to expose sinfulness. In fact, his whole life, when Jesus, as an adult, when he enters into public ministry, John the Baptist uh, stops the crowd that's following him and yells out to a huge crowd about Jesus' uh, oncoming ministry. And he says that he saw Jesus coming towards him, John chapter 1, verse 29, and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the what? The world. This is Jesus. Jesus is never your Savior unless you can acknowledge your sin. You have no salvation, no eternal life unless you can acknowledge your sin. Um, we can't preach the gospel, share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, without helping people see they need saving. I've got plenty of friends 
that do not call themselves Christian and they say something like this. Help me out. You've probably been there before. My life's not that bad. My life's not like yours, Ryan. You had a real troubled past. I never had that. I kind of, I'm okay, man. I don't need God. I'm good. They don't acknowledge sin. Truth is, right, it's not that hard to think about it, right? No one's perfect, are they? Everybody sins. We all sin. Jesus declares the sinfulness of man. Number four I would share with you is that Jesus offers a relationship, not religion. This is what Jesus was doing. He was trying to help people understand this isn't religion. This is a a relationship with God. Jesus was exposing the dead religion with the Jews. Religion that was all about rules, no relationship. It was about information, not transformation. It was about law with no love. It was all truth with no grace. It was about works, not faith. It was about man, not God. It was about personal achievement, not divine merit. It was about self, not about others. It was about death, not life. Jesus offered a relationship, not as a set of rules that you'll find in religion, but he offered himself in it. And so, what does this look like for us? I think that you have three options to live in life. Let's look at them. I think every person on the planet has three options on how to live as an individual. I'll tell you my story, and then you figure out where you're at. Um, I lived an irreligious lifestyle. That means I kind of lived as I pleased. I just kind of did what I wanted to do. Um, I partied a lot. I rebelled. I broke the law. I did the things, everything you shouldn't do. I was kicked out of church camps. I didn't feel like the church was a good place for me because they all seemed perfect and I'm so imperfect. So I had a very difficult time, very irreligious person. I would say things like, maybe God exists, but I don't know him. I would say, if God really was loving, then why does he let bad things happen? I would say, "Um, I just kind of want to do what I want to do, and if God has a problem with it, he'll let me know. That's an irreligious lifestyle. Let's just be honest. Anybody else lived an irreligious lifestyle? Raise your hand. Only a couple of you. There you go. Come on. There we go. Okay. That's live as you please. And the end, the end idea of living as you please, uh, you're just running away from God. Um, in, the, in the Gospels, um, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. He's a kid who's been brought up in a pretty good home. And he runs and he rebels against his mom and dad and against the faith. And he goes and lives as he please. He's spending all his money and his inheritance on loose living. Basically, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's what he did. He just went out and partied for a very long time. The truth is, is all of us um, at some level um, can identify with some of this. So um, irreligious people don't know Jesus Christ. Irreligious people uh, don't know um, what it's like that Jesus offers a real relationship. Let's go to the other side, religion. Part of the reason I was irreligious was because of religion. Let me explain that. I was told that basically if I wanted to, if I would obey all the rules, and if I was good enough, then God would accept me. The problem was I wasn't good at keeping rules. So therefore, I'm not accepted by God. So I would go to church all the time thinking, I constantly disobey. 
God would never love me. How could he? I think he wants to shock me with a lightning bolt if I attend church. So I'm afraid to go. I've done so many bad things. Um, religion teaches the idea that you can work your way to heaven if you obey enough. You do enough good works. You pray, you read your Bible, you get baptized, you uh, give your money to, towards the church, you do tithing, uh, you serve in the church. Maybe you go on a mission. If you're out of the Mormon background, you need to do that. Um, maybe it's you've got to attend uh, certain services and confess your sins on a regular basis. If you do all these things, then maybe you can be accepted. Um, Jehovah's Witness are pretty heavy on works. Um, they, if you're not familiar with JWs or you yourself came out of a Jehovah's Witness background, they believe the idea that you got about 144,000 people that are going to make it into heaven. There's a lot of people in our world, and 144,000 isn't a lot. And so you can imagine how nervous they are. Um, they have the highest rate of suicide in religions. And the reason why is because it's so works-oriented that it's perfectionism which doesn't exist. So what does Jesus offer? Let me ask you this. Um, you remember when Jesus met that woman at the well? And he told her about eternal life. What he didn't say is, he didn't start with, hey, I know how sexually immoral you are. I know how crazy wicked you are. You can't have eternal life unless you get your life straight. Then you can come talk to me. He started with, there's an everlasting life and you can have it. Don't dismiss your sin. But this life, this is for you. See, what the gospel says is that you can be accepted by God. And as you can be accepted by God, simply by God's grace. The Bible says that it is by grace that we're saved. It's through faith. That it's not a work that we do to earn our salvation. That God gives eternal life. And so what we see in our own life is sometimes is that we're trying to work for acceptance. And Jesus did it all. Jesus died on the cross. What is the gospel? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says that the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. That he lived the perfect life. He died the perfect death for our sins. And that he was raised again. In Jesus living the perfect life, He completely fulfilled the law, earning for you a righteousness that you don't have. He fulfills the mandate for mankind. He takes the blame for you and me. He serves as a substitute when He goes to the cross. On that cross, He is bearing upon Himself the sins of us all. And that you and I, just by receiving Jesus Christ, by God's grace through faith, you and I are accepted. But it's nothing you did. It's something Jesus did. Jesus, help me out, paid it what? All. Amen? So the good news is, is that you find forgiveness through the cross. The good news is, is that he didn't just stay on that cross. He is not dead, but he is alive. And the Bible tells us that the good news is, is that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you. So we have this gospel life as Christians 
that you and I don't have to think and fall under the idea that when we die and we meet God, it's not like he's going to go, now, why should I let you in? Because I'm weighing your deeds. You did a lot of bad deeds and not as many good deeds. Therefore, you're not getting in. No, Jesus paid it all. So as the Christian, the person who says, I believe in Jesus Christ, realize you're accepted, you're loved by God, and as a result of your acceptance, you obey. Out of a heart of gratitude and gratefulness, therefore you can serve, you can be baptized, you can give your money, but never thinking that you doing these things is getting you into heaven. The only thing getting you into heaven is Jesus. He said, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one gets to the Father but through Him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word. I do pray for us um, here in the room today where perhaps this is being presented and it's new information and it's challenging for us to hear. I pray that we would simply look towards Your Scripture, listen to Your Holy Spirit, and make our decisions. Lord, you call us to live a life of uh, gospel, a gospel life, not a religious life, because it's about a relationship with you, not some religion filled with rules. Thank you for your love for everybody here in the room. For some in the room today, Lord, they're not sure if they were to die tonight, whether they would go to heaven or not. Some are exhausted by seeking their own uh, agenda in life, and they can't find life the way Christians describe it. I pray right now for your Holy Spirit to draw out those desires and today would be a transition of faith and trust in you and they'd believe in you. So for anybody in the room as we're bowed here in prayer, I want to invite you to start a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus loves you. He's planned on this moment and he wants you to have an eternal relationship with him. You don't have to pretend to be perfect. You don't have to try anymore. You just need to receive Him. And let His life be in your life. You don't need to play religion. You just need that relationship. And so for those of you that are in that spot, would you just pray with me? Heavenly Father, I'm here today and I need You, Jesus. I acknowledge my sinfulness, my imperfections. I believe in You, Jesus Christ, to be the Lord, the Messiah. I believe you to be my God, my Savior. And today I confess you with my mouth and I believe in my heart that you're Lord in Jesus' name. And for all those in the room today that just need encouragement, know that you don't have to pretend and play a religious life. There's grace for you. There's mercy for you every single day. You're accepted. You're not rejected. God loves you. Is a plan for your life and for every sin and where that increases, grace abounds for you. He will never abandon you. He's always with you. And He's here today to strengthen you. In the mighty name of Jesus, everybody said, Amen. All right. Well, I hope some of you did business with God and that's pretty cool. So let's celebrate that work right now. I don't do this because it's a great profession. I do it because it's a calling on my life. I do it because I want you to experience life. I'm here because I felt like God called me here to start this church, and it's an honor to be with you and to help many of you 
grow in your faith, know Jesus. That's what we're here for. And we're all on a journey. Whether we love God or not, it's a journey. And the greatest journey is the relationship that you're going to have with Jesus Christ. Amen? Hey, before I leave, I want to say thank you to all of you who give financially towards our church. We need to fuel and fund all of our ministries and missions as the church grows and we're opening up new buildings and facilities. So know ahead of time, those of you that are giving, thank you very much. So appreciate that. Those of you that are traveling a lot, please make sure to give online and better yet, reoccurring. Those of you that love to give cash or check, you can do that today. And uh, I'm so grateful for you partnering with us. Let's stand and we're going to worship together. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to support North Valley Church by partnering with us through giving, you can do so by visiting us online at northvalley.org. Thanks and have a great day.